You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. This week, Harley, our foreign correspondent host from the UK, has found us a really interesting uh, discussion from a stream of solidarity event with Ronnie Lee. And Ronnie Lee has been a vegan and campaigner for animal liberation for almost 50 years. In the early 1970s, he's one of the founders of Animal Liberation Front and served three prison sentences for animal liberation activism, uh, totaling a, a total amount of nine years in prison or thereabouts. And Animal Liberation Front, for most of our regular listeners, is a well-known organisation. But for those who don't know about Animal Liberation Front, I um, strongly encourage you to go and look up the uh, work that they do and learn a little bit about the history. And you'll learn a little bit about that today uh, in this interview with Ronnie Lee. Since Ronnie's last release from prison in 1992, he's been more involved in various animal protection campaigns and political activities. And his main focus now is actually on vegan outreach and the creation of a network of local activist groups to spread the vegan message. And this um, stream of solidarity was hosted by Animal Rebellion in the UK, and they've given us permission to rebroadcast it here on FOZ, which is very generous of them. Yeah, so stay tuned and listen to this great interview with Ronnie Lee. The interview proper ends um, at about 43 minutes into into the interview. And then there's questions from the audience. Um, and some of the audio there is a little bit more difficult to hear. Uh, so I do apologise for that. But otherwise, it's um, it's really good. And I've left, left most of the questions in. Uh, that I could that I could fit in to the hour slot that we've got here. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science, and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Welcome, everybody. Is that everyone in? Cool. 
my name's James. Uh, I'm here with my wonderful compadre, Kerry. Um, we're here from the uh, political circle of Animal Rebellion. Uh, and this evening, we have the absolute honour of speaking to someone who's pretty uncontroversially could be considered the father of the modern animal liberation movement, Ronnie Lee. Uh, Ronnie is one of the founders of the Animal Liberation Front, where I'm sure most people will be aware utilise direct action tactics to fight for total liberation of all species. Uh, Ronnie's also the founder of uh, Archangel Magazine and a genuine scholar and a gent to boot. Um, so thank you, Ronnie, for uh, giving us your time this evening to come and speak to us. Um, I guess a little bit of housekeeping before we, keep, uh, before we kick off. Um, we're going to have like a little interview with Ronnie and then we're going to open it up for questions at the end. Um, so if anyone wants to like pop a question in the chat, either on Facebook or on here, um, if you're on the Zoom call, you can also ask in person if you prefer. Um, can I ask that everyone keeps their microphones off and, unless they're speaking as well, just so we don't have to listen to your dog barking, asking for a shit or anything like that. Um, so I guess we'll crack on. Um, Ronnie, I'm sure most people who are watching this are pretty clued up about uh, yours and the ALS. Uh, decades of tireless, tireless work on behalf of the most victimised in our society. Um, from my point of view, the ALF was, was my introduction to the very concept of animal liberation. I'm loath to make you retell a story you've no doubt told a few times before, um, but perhaps for some of the younglings who maybe weren't around in the halcyon days of like the 80s and 90s, maybe you could give us a bit of a history lesson as to, as to how it's all come to be. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm, I'm pleased you described me as the father of the animal liberation movement because somebody a while back described me as the grandfather of it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I feel a bit younger now. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, well, well, kind of, it, for me, it all started really when I became vegan. I became vegan in um, 19, uh, 1971. I'd, I'd, been, um, I'd, been, I'd been vegetarian for a couple of years before that. And um, I, um, uh, I'm kind of... Um, uh, I, I also learned about a lot of other stuff that was going on. When I was a vegetarian, I did. I I just knew that um, animals were killed for meat, and I didn't want to. I, I didn't want to be part of that. Um, at the same time, I became vegan. I learned about lots of other things about hunting, about the fur trade, about vivisection, all these things. And I kind of immediately wanted to become active at, um, against those things. And it, it was. There was no real distinction between me becoming vegan and me becoming an activist. And it kind of that's why it seems strange to me these days that, that so many vegans aren't active. In fact, the vast majority of vegans aren't active. And I, I kind of find that a bit weird because surely it's not enough for us to, just to be vegan when loads of other people aren't vegan and loads of people are oppressing animals surely we have to be active and try and stop that if we if we really want to help animals mm. so I, I very quickly saw um a news item on television about the hunt saboteurs and, and i thought right i've got to join <laughs> i've got to join the sabs i got involved with the hunt sabs very soon started my own sab group um and then i kind of started thinking with some other people about how kind of direct action could be extended and applied to other things um, other types of hunting, such as cub hunting, which is very difficult to to sab in in the normal way that the, the, the you know the hunt subs operate. And so uh, a, a few of us got together. Um, this was in the um, uh, 1973 summer of 1973, and we had a, a, a kind of secret meeting in London, and we we formed a we formed a group that we um, first of all called the Band of Mercy. 
Um, and the reason for that was because in the 19th century, there was a, an RSPCA youth group called the Band of Mercy, and they actually took direct action. Um, very strange for the RSPCA, but they did in those days, at least the young people did. And they damaged guns belonging to shooters and stuff like that. You know, We thought, oh, great, we'll revive the spirit of that. We'll call ourselves the same name. And we kind of started off, um, um, our first targets were kind of were hunt kennels. We caused some damage to their vehicles to stop them going hunting. This was normally in the in the cub hunting season that we did that. And then we went on to, we tried to destroy a um, vivisection laboratory that was being built in Milton Keynes. Uh, we, uh, we damaged some boats used for, for, for seal hunting. And we caused a lot of damage to uh, vehicles at places that bred and supplied animals for laboratories. And then a, a couple of us got arrested. We, we ended up getting put in prison. I had a three-year prison sentence. I was in, out of that. I was in prison for a year. It came out in um, 1976. And I was really pleasantly surprised as loads of other people wanted to, <laughs> wanted to do the same thing. I thought it might put people off that I'd been put in prison, but it was the opposite. And, and, and all this kind of really, you know, mostly young people, um, you know, coming up to me and saying, you know, mostly from Hunt Sabs, I want to do the same thing. How do I get involved and all that? And it was great. And and so, you know, all these new people got involved. And then we changed the name to the Animal Liberation Front because um, that said what it was. The Band of Mercy sounded a bit like a religious organisation. It didn't mention animals. And so, we, you know, what we wanted was animal liberation. So we changed the name. And then it kind of went from strength to, to strength because there was more people involved. So we were able to do more complicated things. The Band of Mercy didn't really rescue many animals we mostly caused damage with more people involved the alf was able to do raids where where animals were rescued you know quite a large number of animals and you know and kind of larger animals such as such as dogs for instance uh, and even rescued i think you know uh, you know farmed animals as, as as well on occasion because you know more people were involved and carried on you know causing a lot of damage uh i got I got put in prison again. I got a 12 month sentence for um, causing damage at a place that uh, ran animals for experiments. And, uh, and, and when I kind of, you know, came out from that sentence, uh, sentence, I became the press officer of the Animal Liberation Front because the media wanted somebody to talk to, you know, when raids had happened. But I kind of still, I, I very soon got back into the activism <laughs> again. So I kind of was wearing two hats. I was a press officer and a kind of activist as well. And then in 80, 80, 1986, I got arrested again. And that was the kind of biggie because I got charged with conspiracy, um, conspiring to uh, encourage other people to do ALF stuff uh, and conspiring to cause damage. And I ended up getting a 10 year sentence uh, for that, uh, of which I was in prison for six years and eight months. And kind of it was it was kind of while I was in prison that I I launched Archangel because um, the, the the ALF supporters group had a, a newsletter and that kind of got closed down. The person who edited that got sent to prison as well. And there was kind of no publication that talked about animal liberation. So I thought, well, there needs to be one so I kind of started I actually started Archangel when I was in prison and I wrote a lot of stuff for it to start with and then the 
the authorities stopped me doing that and so other people took it over and it did it did go on for really quite a quite a number of years after that so even when i was in <laughs> even when i was in jail i still tried to do to, to do what i could um and and that's kind of you know my story really regarding the ALF you know very a very quick one but I mean if anyone wants to ask anything about it I'd be very happy to to answer well, yeah um as you said you spent um nine years in jail across three prison sentences for the for the cause of animal liberation uh, and in 1974 you went on what was quite possibly the movement's first hunger strike um, which was a tactic that was later adopted by the likes of Barry Horn, who uh, famously died in 2001 after the Labour government lied about holding an inquiry into animal testing prior to its 97 win. Um, how do you mentally prepare for, for dealing with these kind of hardships? And do you have any advice for, for activists who may one day find themselves in a similar position? Well, first of all, the, re the, the reason I went on hunger strike was because... It, um, um, when, when I went in jail, the first time I, I, I was put in prison was I was on remand. I hadn't been um, sentenced, and, and I, I spent um, ten years in uh, ten years, ten days, sorry, ten days in jail before I got bail. And that wasn't too bad for food because at the time, if you were an unconvicted prisoner, you could have food brought into you. So it was, you know, I was still, you know, able to eat vegan food. When I actually got convicted and sentenced, and, and when I went in the prison and said I was a vegan, they said, "Oh well, you know, we don't recognise that." you'll have to have a vegetarian diet and you'll have to kind of pick what you can out of a vegetarian diet because they didn't recognize the vegan diet they recognized if someone was a muslim or, or a jew they'd get the diet that, that went with their religion if someone said they were a vegetarian they get a vegetarian diet but a vegan um it wasn't recognized so i thought right i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna go on hunger strike till they give me a vegan diet and, and that's what i did i was 10, 10 days on hunger strike i ended up being moved to a another prison and uh, where they had a hospital I was put in the prison hospital um and then after after 10 days the, the the guy the prison officer in charge of the kitchen came to see me and, and more or less said okay we were, we'll agree we've agreed to give you a vegan diet and he discussed with me you know how how to you know how to put the diet together I, I mean it wasn't any, anything <laughs> it wasn't anything like luxurious because of course they you know they don't spend a massive amount of money on food but it was it was okay I mean, it was nutritious and um uh you know fairly boring but it but, but it but it was good enough and so i kind of you know won won that victory really with the hunger strike but it kind of was only a victory for me and and it kind of followed me around when i went to different prisons they gave me a vegan diet because i thought oh if this guy doesn't get a vegan diet he's going to cause trouble so i give him a vegan diet but it wasn't universal it didn't it, it didn't apply to other vegans and it was only when the vegan society um uh got involved and later there was an organization called the vegan prisoner support group that got involved with prisons and, and actually one um one vegan prisoners the right to have a vegan diet so um it kind of ended up that if if you went into prison and said you were a vegan you got a vegan diet um i mean hopefully that's the same today i don't know because you know really quite a long time since i've been in prison but i hope that's the same now it was certainly like that last time i ended up in jail i know that much uh, i don't know if that's uh, hopefully that's true across the board um yeah in 2008 you expressed regret that the alf only targeted the, the properties of uh, institutions committing animal abuse uh, as opposed to targeting the individuals involved directly in their own homes um, do you feel that policies of non-violence protect uh, these abusive industries and the state at large? And what's your view towards uh, research by the likes of Erica Chenoweth that suggests that uh, campaigns utilising non-violence can be twice as effective as, as violent campaigns? 
I kind of think I, I, I think it depends what the target is. Uh, um, uh, with, with the ALF, um, the, the, the ALF's main areas of success in, in the UK were against uh, the fur trade and uh, the vivisection industry. Uh, I, I mean, for instance, you know, during the years that the ALF was was really most active, the number of experiments on animals um, every year, according to official figures in the UK, um, fell by fell by three million. So that was millions of animals that were spared because, and I, you know, there's, there's no read other other explanation for it other than the pressure that the um, the ALF put on the industry and individuals within that industry. And secondly, the fur trade. I mean, in, if you go back to the the, the 70s and 80s, um, if, if every town, if, every town really had a fur shop, and in, in in cities, a lot of the suburbs had their own fur shops. Um, a large number of department stores had fur departments, and the ALF began in, in the 1980s. The ALF began a, a campaign of, of of causing damage to these places. Uh, and, and the situation end, ended up after a number of years, um, and it's still the case today, um, where the only high street fur shops, the only high street fur shops there are, are in London and just in one part of London. And the only department store that actually sells fur, that actually has a fur department, is Harrods. Um, I mean, th- you still get fur, you still get, you know, Canada Goose using fur trim and, and, and flannels, for instance. Um, try and sneak sneaking fur in, and there'll be people maybe selling fur gloves and stuff like that. But 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 it, but it's it's massively it's it's massively less than what it was when you used to have you know you you, you walk down the high street and there'd be fur coats, full fur mm-hmm. coats in the win, in the window of a store. So that was that was like a, a those are the two main areas that big success for the area. Um, but I think if you're if you're talking about um, bigger stuff than that, if you're talking about the you know, consumption of animal products. I mean, if you compare the number of animals, um, the number of animal experiments a year uh, in the UK, probably about 4 million. Um, the number of the number of animals that are slaughtered to feed um, people in the UK is 8 billion. So it's 2,000. That differential is 2,000, 2,000 times more. And you're dealing with something where the, where the public play a huge part in it. I mean, the public don't really play a part in... in um, animal experiments and in, t- in terms of the, f- the fur trade it's only a, a really small minority of the public that, that would buy fur so you, you, d- you did a different situation but with with uh, the consumption of animal products it's universal you know almost every person's involved in that and so you have to um with the ALF the the, the general public were, were kind of on the sidelines it was a direct battle a direct war between ourselves and 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 the and and the people that oppressed animals the public had had been you know involvement in that but i think if 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 we're going to um um if we're going to make a a, a really big difference to to, to 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 the areas you know the really huge areas of animal oppression to me there's two two huge areas of animal oppression one's the consumption of animal products and the other is is negative human impact on the environment, as with the climate crisis, etc. If you're going to try and uh, uh, attack those huge areas, then uh, I think different tactics are needed. I think first of all, you've got, you, you've got to have tactics that in, in, include the public that can that can bring the public with us, and you have to have tactics that kind of uh, impact on uh, impact on government as well and can make a difference to government in terms of both putting pressure on, on government and, and in terms of also changing who's in government, because if, if we're going to change, you know, the type of government we had, the type of people who kind of 
are in the administration to make the decisions we have to change ordinary people because it's ordinary people that vote those the, 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 those people in it's ordinary people that vote for those politicians so we have to have a campaign that kind of in a sense where we take the public with us and that's why i think that um for that type of campaign that kind of um that non-violence is really important i mean i mean i'd argue that damage to property the, the alf did kind of you know was was you know it wasn't violence anyway i mean you know people have different opinions on that but i think that that you have to have a different type of campaign if you're if if we're attacking these kind of these huge areas of animal oppression i, th- I think our tactics um have to be different and i think that's fair enough i mean i i still regard it as as, as a war you know i regard it as like a, a kind of warrior against um animal oppression but i think in war you have to have regard to tactics and you can't you have to think well how you know you know what strategy and, and what tactics do it do we adopt in order to win win that and that means changing that means if if, we, if, we can't, if we're not going to going to be flexible with our tactics we're not going to use the appropriate tactics for the appropriate situations then we're not going to win mm-hmm. absolutely yeah um yeah uh, in in um in 1998 uh, an undercover police officer had infiltrated a, an alf group um and was involved with the release of about six thousand mink from a fur farm near ringwood um with the current controversy surrounding the so-called uh, covert human uh, intelligence sources bill uh, which, for those that aren't aware, effectively authorises undercover police officers to to commit any and all crimes, including rape and murder, for for reasons as spurious as preventing disorder and to defend the economic interests of the United Kingdom. Um, so, like in the face of such authoritarianism, like what what are some of the things that peaceful activists can do to protect themselves against the overreach of the state like this? Well, I think. Um, uh... Actually, I don't think I, I, I don't think the state, or you know, when we when we talk about the state, we're really referring to the the government and the type of government we've got in terms of the, the, the you know the conservatives and uh, and their policies and, and and what they'd really like to be their their policies because you know they'd like to go further in on their trajectory on their right wing um, repressive trajectory than they are now, and and they just do what they can get away with. Um, I mean, I think I think first of all, you know, one thing is to be, be, be kind of mindful of mindful of tactics, um, because as as yet there, there are certain things that they they can't do very much about. They may want to do something about those things, but they they kind of can't. And and I think one really important thing, if, if we're going to kind of actually change society, we're going to change the system. And, and we're, we're going to change, you know, the, the, the people that that make the decisions. Uh, we've got to look at, well, how does that happen? You know, how, how are those people there? Why are those people in those in those positions? You know, and, and you know, if we look, you know, why why have we got this government that we've got? And the reason we got this government we got was because thirty percent of the people that are um, qualified to vote actually voted for the Conservative Party. That's why we've got them. And the same situation in the USA when Donald Trump was elected. And very frighteningly, he got even more of the vote in the USA this time, although thankfully Joe, Joe Biden got, got more. But it's still a very worrying situation. Um, and that's ordinary people. Ordinary people, you know, the, 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 the Tories didn't drop down from the sky and, you know, impose the government. They were voted in. They're voted in by people. And so if we're going to change 
the type of people we've got in government and we're going to have a type of people in government who kind of you know we'll care about animals we'll care about in the environment you know we'll care about social justice and uh, uh, and uh, and equality and fairness and all these things we've got to change the attitudes of ordinary people because we've got to um, educate ordinary people to 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 to, to vote differently so, so you know, when I, when I talk about it being an education, I, I talk about it in, in kind of like a broad, um, uh, in a broad sense. Yes, of course, it's 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 really important to to educate people, not to consume some animal products. It's very important to educate people um, to be opposed to human supremacism and speciesism, and and to be opposed to you know all forms of the the, the oppression of animals by humans. Um, but it's also in, in, important as well, and I think that that that's kind of included in the whole thing uh, to educate people so that when they go down the ballot box, they actually vote for somebody that's kind of half decent, and, and also that the more um, the, the more vegans we can create, then uh, you know obviously percentage wise, more of those vegans will go into politics, and we'll have more vegan politicians both at local level and, and national level who who will you know. Um, who will hopefully have the right attitudes and, and we'll be able to, you know, pass the laws and regulations that we need to protect animals. So that's why that's why kind of, you know, educating people is so vitally important because it goes to the very root cause of, of, of what the problem is. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, um, so in recent years, you've, you've become a member of the, uh, of the Green Party. Um, so, I mean, you know, uh, what are your thoughts sort of regarding like the current political paradigm? As, as you mentioned, the government uh, effectively, they, they managed to sort of, they got voted in because 29% of the population actually voted for them. And they seem to maintain power through a combination of an anachronistic voting system, um, uh, gerrymandering, voter disenfranchisement, media manipulation, and, and having constituency boundaries drawn in such a way that some votes can be worth effectively half what they might be worth in, in other constituencies um, due to the demographic shifts that have occurred since the late 90s. Um, not only that, but the ruling party have a stated intention of amending the Human Rights Act uh, and ending fixed term limits, as well as removing judicial over oversight of the executive branch of government, which should be pretty terrifying for everyone. Um, so, yeah, with that, what, what are your hopes for reforming the current system before we all burn to death? And, <laughs> and does Middle England need to get off Netflix and just fucking do something? Well, of course, lots of people need to get off Netflix and do something. I think a lot of vegans have to be, get off Netflix and go out and do some vegan education. I mean, they already know what the problem is and they've already tried to do something about it themselves, but it's not enough. We've got to, you know, we've got to educate other people and, you know, make everyone vegan. Um, so, I, I mean, yeah, it's kind of, it's back to kind of what I, 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 I said previously about it kind of all comes down to, you, you know, um, because these people are in power and these people are able to do what they do because they were, because they were voted there, you know, and that, that comes down to ordinary people and the attitudes of ordinary people. And I think that there is, you know, we've, we've got to kind of work out a strategy of, well, how can we, um, how can we kind of make a difference to ordinary people? You know, how, how can we, you know, how, how can we create this change? And I think it's kind of down, it, it, it's, it, it, it's actually down to, to, to one thing. And, um, I will say that the most important thing that we need at the moment is our organisers, our vegan organisers, because if we're going to educate ordinary people and change ordinary people so that we can you know, change, change human behaviour so that people don't, um, through their lifestyles, um, 
cause uh, it could cause harm to other animals, um, both in terms of consuming animal products and impact on the environment. Um, you know, we have to educate a lot of people, and then you know, through that education, we, we also have to educate um, people to 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 vote differently. So we have different you know, different people um, that are kind of running the show, so to speak. I mean, really, we have to run the show. This is the thing that kind of, um, you know, the idea, the idea of rebellion is great. The idea of rebellion against tyranny is, is brilliant. And of course, we've got to do that. But at the end of the day, being a rebel isn't enough because you only change things if you're in charge. You know, yeah. we, we've got, we, we, you know, we, we, we've got a, a set out a strategy where we run the show because we, if we don't run the show, then the people on the other side will run the show. There isn't an alternative to that. That's 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 kind of how the cookie crumbles. It's mm. either us or them, right? Yeah. You know, either like we kick their ass or they kick our ass. That's how it is. You know, you, you know, sadly and unfortunately, that's how it is. So we've got to be the people that kick ass. We have got to get ourselves into a position where we kick ass, where we call the shots, and where we create a society. Where animals are properly protected, and 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 if it, and if people in those society in that society try to oppress animals, then they don't. We make sure their feet don't touch the ground. We've got to be the people that call the shots, and we've got to kind of work out how we can get into that position. How is it that we can call the shots? How can we get ourselves into those positions where we have the say so? Because if we don't, then the people who are in those positions will be people that want to carry on abusing and oppressing animals and, 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 and abusing and oppressing vulnerable people, um, etc. So that's how we've got to, we've got to kind of devise a strategy whereby, you know, it's not just that we're not just kind of rebels, we're not just protesters, but we're also, try, you know, seeking to get ourselves into a position where we actually, you know, where we're the ones that, you know, that create the world and we're the ones that you know say what happens amen brother uh yeah absolutely um uh, how do you feel about infighting um within the movement at large i know that in 1974 the uh, the hunt sub association actually offered a financial reward for information that would lead to the discovery of the identity of those involved with the band of mercy which is, uh, as you mentioned, the previous name for the ALI. Um, yeah. Nowadays, there seems to be a certain level of elitism between different activist groups, and there's disagreement over the kind of actions that they should undertake. Um, do you feel that that's healthy, or do you f think that we should be prepared to sort of draw broad alliances with people we perhaps don't 100% agree with in order to get somewhere? Yeah, I think, I've, I, I think there's a difference between... Um, you know, kind of um, what you might call um, positive criticism and, and negative criticism. I, I think it's important that we have a discussion about tactics and, 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 you know, what works and what doesn't work and how things can be changed so they work better. And, you know, between, um, you know, between, all, you know, everyone that's, you know, campaigning for animals in different ways. I think that's, 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 that's really important. But I think that kind of, you know, if we criticise other people, it, it you know, it has to come from um, uh, a position of wanting to be constructive mm. and, and also accepting that not everyone is, um, uh, uh, that, that different people are kind of made in different ways and, and different people are, uh, are good at different things in terms of campaigning. And uh, what someone's actually most drawn to is almost always what, what they're best at. 
you know so i think i think we kind of have to have, we need to have a broad front of, of different types of um, of activities different ways of you know campaigning against uh, against the oppression of other animals um the, the kind of the, the the word i use a lot though and i think it's really important is the word unless um i'd say that you know it's really important to have you know all these different campaigns going and and, and they're all you know that that it's, it's like a jigsaw that kind of forms a whole or you know all, all these things but but where i say unless you know i i, I to, to me that's in relation to you know going going back to going back to education that unless we we do have uh a, 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 a lot of local groups have had local groups everywhere um every town city suburb of every city that are going out there educating ordinary people uh and unless we have um people organizing those groups and, uh, and unless we have people stimulating activity within those groups unless we kind of build that situation i i don't think we're going to achieve animal liberation i think it's important to have all these things going on but i i i, I see that as like really having that situation of, of local campaigning groups the local uh, outreach groups as a, a prerequisite really. I, I think that's kind of whatever people are doing it's essential that we have enough people doing that i'm not saying that everyone should do it not everyone's cut out to do it and uh, and and people are cut out to do i mean it's great there's hunt saboteurs going out saving animals it's great that you know the animal rebellion in in the streets of london and all that uh, all these things are it's great that people are doing animal rescue you, all, all these things are like uh, are great are fantastic that people are doing all those things because far too many people aren't doing anything i mean of course we've got a large number of people that aren't even vegan we've got a large number of people that are vegan but they don't do anything apart from kind of thinking about what, what cake they're going to get next you know um, <laughs> i mean yes i mean it is but the thing is it's not you know being an activist isn't necessary isn't it doesn't have to be a big deal you'd be an activist you'd put some leaflets to people's letterbox or give them out in the street or you know help at a store you don't have to kind of do something that's going to you know be be massively risky to yourself in any way i mean you know big up to people that do do the more risky things but not you don't have to do that if that's not how, how you feel everyone could do something um and i think that um in in terms of um you know go, going back to the criticism i think i think it's important to accept that like we need to be um it needs to be like um a kind of broad church in a way strange thing to say for somebody like me it's not religious but like you, you see what i mean it's, it's it's like a you know we have to have a have a, have a broad movement and i think it's important that you know everyone is supported that is is campaigning whatever way they they can mm. yeah um so i mean how, how do you feel about the state of activism in in 2020 uh, how does it compare to previous decades and and do you feel what do you feel about the fight for animal liberation uh, seemingly sort of intersecting with other social and, and climate justice movements? All right. Well, <laughs> hopefully I can remember all the different aspects. Of that. If I forget, then remind me afterwards. Um, yeah, yeah. Like a, you know, like a quick history of, of, of things. I'm just going to, my phone keeps dinging. So let me turn it off. Right. Um, it, it, yeah. Um, I mean, way back. I mean, before the if we if we go back before the sixties and seventies, uh, what we had in terms of the um, it wasn't really an animal liberation movement in terms of people that wanted to protect animals or people supported animal welfare. You kind of it, in the UK you had national organisations. There was a League Against Cruel Sports, National Anti-Vivisection Society. Um, there was the BUAB and 
you know, other organisations campaigning against different aspects of um, the ill treatment of, of animals. But um, hardly any of these people were, were vegan. In fact, in fact, hardly any were vegetarian. You know, these organisations were run by meat eaters and they were mainly about asking their supporters for money you know send us money and we'll we'll you know try and put pressure on the government to change things and it was like kind of very sort of centralized in that sense and and, and there was no real grassroots activism and then things started to change and Hans Habiter started in, in the 60s that was the kind of first direct action group really and then when it got into the 70s that was the kind of big change because that's when the concept of animal rights kind of arose and you had um uh, you had different you know philosophical books written like Peter Singer's Animal Liberation, although Peter Singer isn't is a utilitarian, he's not a, 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 an animal rights philosopher. Um, Tom Reagan, for instance, he, you know, he wrote about animal rights. Uh, Richard Ryder, Victims of Science, uh, Richard Ryder coined the term speciesism, that's a very, very, very important work. Um, all that in, in the 70s, the idea of the animal rights movement, um, the ALF started off, um, veganism started really, you know, started growing up in those days um and and so you had um you had a more grassroots movement springing up and you had you know people campaigning in a more activist way but it's what, what's really interesting is although there were a lot more vegans involved and 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 and, and at that time these national organizations started to be kind of taken over by vegans you know there were vegans like kind of running a lot of these organizations uh, uh and um a lot of vegans in, involved in them as, as well as people doing the kind of more grassroots campaigning but what's really interesting at the time is nobody campaigned for veganism uh, there was no vegan outreach really at all you know it was it was the vegans doing the campaigning but people were campaigning against animal experiments against fur trade against hunting uh, against circuses and zoos and all these things and and, and all that's great but like the kind of the, the real biggie you know the, the hugest biggest area of all of of, of animal oppression nobody's campaigning on it there was the vegan society the vegan society was more a support organization for people that were vegans rather than they weren't an out and out you know campaigning campaigning organization and that went on that kind of went on for um a kind of couple of decades and it's, it's only when we got into perhaps the late 90s and into the 2000s that people actually started campaigning for veganism when you start having vegan fairs when you start having people talking about vegan outreach it, vegan vegan outreach is, is, is kind of in, in the whole history of the animal rights movement and the animal protection movement vegan outreach is, is really quite a recent thing it, you know it's, it's it's only 20 years 25 years old really at the most that people have been doing that and, and in a sense that kind of most important form of campaigning against the hugest area of at all of animal oppression has only is only really quite a recent thing um and so that's kind of like the, the sort of history of the the, um, the 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 movement i think the other thing you asked me was is about um about other movements and movements for social justice and, and, and that type of thing and, and I feel very strongly that for you know for, for two big reasons that um, uh, the animal liberation movement has to be part of the left we, we have to be a, a, a left-wing movement and, and kind of we are a left-wing movement and, and I think it's two reasons for that I think first of all if, if you're going to argue against speciesism you're going to argue against human supremacism it doesn't that doesn't make sense unless you're also opposed to racism to sexism, to homophobia, and all these other uh, into human prejudices. You can't make a case um, against speciesism if, if you're prejudiced against, you know, 
human beings are different in some way. It, it just make, it doesn't make sense. So we have to be left-wing in that sense of being opposed to all these forms of um, interhuman prejudice and oppression. And, and secondly, in terms of economics, uh, um, and, and this is re really where I'd gone on to, um, which I'm the area that I regard as the second largest area of uh, oppression of um, uh, other animals or humans. And it may be very clo close to, to, to being the largest area. And that is the um, negative impact of humans on the environment um, in terms of in, in terms of pollution, in, in terms of the climate crisis. I mean, that's that, that's the real biggie uh, in, in, in terms of our uh, overconsumption, you know, our materialism, in terms of our overpopulation, all these things that we humans have negative impact on, on our animals. And in, in the past 500 years, um, uh, the, uh, over more than 300 vertebrate animal species, this isn't all animal species, this is vertebrate animals, um, uh, have, have become extinct due to um, human activity. And, it, and it's kind of strange that you, you hear all this about, uh, you know, our house is on fire, our house is on fire in terms of the climate crisis, and so we have to take this urgent action. But we've already burnt down the houses of three, you know, for 300 other animals. And, and where was all the fuss made when that was going on? And as soon as the human, because as soon as the human starts kind of being impacted, then everyone's like running around all with their hands in the air. But where was it? Where was all that when all these other creatures were dying out? That wasn't, yeah. you know, to be seen. And, and we've still got, we've got to remember that the climate crisis, for, for, no matter how much the climate crisis impacts on, on humans, actually climate crisis impacts far more on what we call the global south, you know, the poorer people on the planet are, are, are much more going to be affected by the climate crisis, which has been caused by the richer people. Mm, so, it'd be, yeah. you know, so there's that in massive injustice in, in terms of climate crisis within humans. But when we take into account other animals, it, it's massively going to impact more on an, other animals than humans on, on wildlife. It is already millions of wild animals are dying now, you know, be, because yeah. of, you know, because the changes there in habit, habitat and the food sources and all that, you know, caused by uh, hu human, you know, you know, human impact on the environment and global heating. And the actual cause of the climate crisis is speciesism. The cause of the climate crisis is human supremacism. The reason for that is, is, is kind of, you know, there's lots of factors that, that caused, um, you know, caused uh, global heating and of course animal animal farming is a, is, is a real big, big factor uh, in connection with that. Um, but the but 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 the but the, the carbon emissions, you know, the carbon emissions from industry, which are kind of you know the, the biggest factor, um, that all started with the industrial revolution, and it's from the industrial revolution that we've had this, this build up of carbon in the atmosphere that has led to the crisis we've got now. And the thing is, okay, when the, the people started the industrial revolution, and, and the industrial revolution was like started off for you know for human benefit for the benefit of a few profiteers really but also because it was felt that it's, you know, this is going to benefit humanity to have all this industry and stuff um of course at the time people didn't know that they were but you know the, the burning of fossil fuels was going to have have such a devastating impact but they did know that this industrialization they'd immediately seen that that industrialization was was adversely impacting uh, on, on wild animals. They'd seen the pollution that was being caused to natural habitat, the destruction of natural habitat was causing, but they didn't care. 
they didn't care because animals weren't important. I just matter if we destroy this wood and you know we pollute, pollute that waterway and those the fish die and the, the wild animals die. That doesn't matter because what matters is like so-called human progress and 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 our profits and the so-called well-being of humans. You see, and and so that's where it all comes from. And had um, had animals been given other animals been given proper uh, consideration, had had everyone been vegan in terms of being properly philosophically vegan. At the time of the Industrial Revolution, it wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have happened or it wouldn't have happened the way it did. We would not now have the climate crisis. We would not have had the carbon emissions and we would not have the climate crisis. And in the same way as COVID, of course, coronaviruses, that's once again a human oppression of other animals caused that. And that's, a, that's, a, that's another one. But it's human supremacism that's caused the climate crisis and the climate crisis will, will impact far more on other animals than it does on humans. So it's very much an animal liberation issue. Now I've taken a long time, a long time to say that, but, but, but going back to what I was saying about, about politics, um, if, if we're going to have, um, if, if, if we're going to have a situation where um, uh, the, the human impact on the environment is far more fair and just um, in terms of other animals, um, we've got to um we've, we've got to ditch this idea of uh, economic growth we have to have degrowth we have to have you know we have to um take far less from the natural world have far less impact on natural we have to have degrowth if you have degrowth it means there's less stuff to go around less stuff to go around everyone and if there's less stuff to go around then you have to have a situation where there's redistribution of wealth because otherwise it's the poorer people you know if someone's massively wealthy and you, you they, they're only you say right you can only live on a quarter of what you got it's not going to really make any difference to them but someone that's poor already it makes a huge difference so we, we have to have in, in in terms of properly protecting the environment and properly protecting the animals that live within it um uh we have to have re uh, degrowth that means we have to have redistribution of wealth and that means we have to have um, some sort of a, um, a left-wing economic situation. So both in terms of, um, um, you know, in terms of like social views and also in terms of economic views, our movement must be a movement of the left. And so, so I mean, I've argued that you, you can't be a right-wing vegan and, and you can't be a right-wing vegan anymore you, you, than you can be a vivisector and be a vegan or be a, you know, a hunter and be a vegan. You know, that, that, that basic, you know, that basic mindset is totally opposed to the um, ethics and philosophy of veganism. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, I'd like to open it out, I guess, for uh, if anyone has any questions. Uh, Kerry, do you know if there's uh, anyone in the, in, on the Zoom chat that might want to ask one face to face or are there any that have uh, come in over, over the, over from Facebook? have um, one question from Facebook from Rachel. Um, Rachel wants to know what's the best way to go about organising a direct a direct action such as lock-on? The best way of organising a lock-on? Well, I, I mean, <laughs> I kind of, I'm probably not the, the best person to talk to because I don't think I've ever really, um, I've kind of ever really done a lock-on. Um, but... <laughs> I mean, I've I've done I've I've did lock the gate of a hunt kennel so they couldn't get out, but then I I didn't stay around to see what was happening. <laughs> but I think um, I, I think with, with any kind of action that anyone's doing, I think that you kind of have to you, you have to kind of do quite a bit of planning first. You've got to kind of look at um, um, where you're going to do it. 
um you've got to um uh, you, you, you've, you've got to you know choose, choose your moment um well and I, I mean one thing is you've, you've, you've got to have kind of good and reliable people because i think you do something like a lock on that you you can't have a situation where someone kind of gets cold feet at the last minute and says oh i, I want to be unlocked and I, I want to get out of here you know um that's the that's the difficult I, I mean i remember we did um probably the, the the thing that we did that was most like a lock-on is many many years ago there was a group of us we um there, there was an organization i don't know whether it exists today called the national coursing club and they um they were the people that that over oversaw hair coursing and a load of us occupied their uh, they occupied their offices in uh in it was somewhere in london and we we barricaded the door with a big uh, table and so it wasn't a lock on it was a lock in we were locked in with the people in the offices you see and they were all like <laughs> wanting to be let out we say no 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 we're kind of you know you're staying here with us sort of thing and uh we went through all the it, you know no computers in those days it was all filing cards went through all their filing cards and i shuffled i was shuffling all their filing cards up so they couldn't you know you know they, they <laughs> couldn't do their work properly and we were going to stay. We might stay there for hours and hours. We would stay for hours, you know. And we got the press. The, the press were down outside the window, and we were shouting out the window to the newspapers. We planned. We thought, oh, well, you know, we'll stay here for about five, six hours. No big thing. But the problem was some, some, and the police were outside the door, but they couldn't get in because we had the big oak table in front of the door. And but somebody in our groups said, "Oh, I can't, I can't carry on. I, I have to be let out. I can't carry on with it." You see, and so we had to let this person out you know, the person in our group. And of course, as we were letting them out, that's when the police barged in and and the kind of whole thing came to an end, you know. So although that's not, as I said, it's locking rather than lock on, I think the same principles apply that you kind of, you have to have people that you're confident are going to see the thing through because the lock on only works, you know, it doesn't work if it only lasts for two minutes. It, you know, this you kind of, the kind of lock on. There was one down in, um, Kent wasn't there outside Charles River where they, they locked on outside the, um, the gates of the um, the lab animal supplier, and and that 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 lasted pretty much all day, and they weren't able to you know take anything in or out, and uh, um, I think they got lots of you know publicity. But you have to have, and that's for say you, you know to kind of make sure that the the people that you know are with you are going to see it through. We've got another question from Ben Newman. Ben, do you want to ask a question? Yeah. Hi Ronnie, um, if you were planning an action today uh, on an animal agriculture aimed with the target of animal agriculture, who would you who would you target, and do you have any great ideas? I mean, in, in, in terms of like a direct action, is is that what you're kind of yeah. saying? Yeah. Uh, um, well, I think the thing is, I think the most important thing. I mean, with with with, with animal agriculture, I think that. Um, it's really important that what you do has a kind of edu a, a sort of educational aspect because at the end of the day, the reason we've got animal agriculture is because people consume, people consume animal products. And so you'd be kind of looking to do something that was kind of highly visual that was likely to, um, to achieve publicity. I mean, the, um, the people that do um, meet the victims, there's been maybe two or three of those meet the victims where people go into a, um, a kind of intensive farm and, and occupy the place and they're all wearing the kind of hazmat suits and all that and going there and I think they 
I think there might be an occasion where animals were rescued as well. You know, maybe the poor, more poorly animals were kind of taken out with the permission of the, the farmer. And those things have got, those things have kind of, kind of got um, good publicity. So I'd say that, you know, you kind of need to do something that, that looks spectacular. So it attracts the publicity because in a lot of ways, the publicity is the sort of most important thing. I mean, the ALF was, you know, the ALF campaign was kind of really different because we, we were actually kind of, looking to cause economic damage against places and kind of put them out of business. And I think the the difficulty with that is that kind of some sometimes it, it can be positive and sometimes not not so. And I I think that you kind of there's no point, you know, putting a place out of business if that that work's just going to be carried on by somewhere else and, and so it doesn't make any difference to the number of animals. And so I think that, um, and I kind of feel this a little bit with, you know, there's campaigns, there's exposés of, of different farms for kind of horrific conditions. I mean, Viva have done some of those. And I think um, uh, AJP have um, uh, done some, haven't they? Um, and um, those are good and they're great for publicity. But I think the thing is, it's, it's, it's like, the, you know, the Viva campaign about Hogwood Farm. And saying, oh, look, boycott Hogwood Farm and, you know, we need Tesco to ditch Hogwood Farm and kind of not to get their bacon from there. Well, kind of, you know, that makes people aware of what happens to pigs and, you know, good in terms of getting people to come vegan. But in actual fact, I think that if Tesco ditched that farm, they'd probably just buy their their pork and bacon from another farm that was just as bad. You see, I mean, because because until we get people not to consume those products you know, the, the, the supply is just going to move elsewhere. So I think publicity, you know, doing something that, you know, direct action has a lot of publicity that will educate people is that really important. We've got another question from Facebook. Do you think that the world will be forced to adopt a vegan way of living due to climate change? I mean, I kind of think, I think the world has to go, has to go that way if if we're um you know if we it, it's a it's a very important aspect of of combating the climate crisis um animal agriculture plays such a huge part in in in, in driving um global heating and and, and then also thing i mean even even with um um you know the fishing industry um industrialized fishing is um there may not be such an impact uh, on the climate with that, but it's, it, it's you know, causes devastating um, uh, ecological damage. So we have to kind of, it, yeah, I, I mean, the world has to adopt, um, the world has to adopt a, um, a plant-based diet or a plant diet, as I'd probably prefer to call it. I th- and I think that that's, that's a vital aspect of combating the climate crisis. Uh, but it's something that it kind of tends to be an elephant in the room very very often you know when people are talking about measures um uh, uh, they're taking to combat the climate emergency you know they're talking about transport and they're talking about industry uh and um and, and stuff like that but so often um uh, food isn't mentioned so often the importance of adopting um the vegan diet isn't mentioned and yet that's such a, 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 a major, major issue. Of course, the other thing that's not mentioned as well is population. And that's another, these things that kind of seem almost frightened to say these things because it means that people, people kind of have to change more. 
you know those are the things where people have to make the big changes and they seem to be scared to talk about those things even though they make a you know huge difference in terms of combating the you know the climate emergency and we've got another question from Facebook from Tom. He says, it seems like a lot of vegan organisations are only focused on their own agendas. Do you think we need to unify as a single global voice? Uh, I kind of think that's true about, you know, uh, groups can be very narrow in, in, in their campaigning methods that they just, you know, like kind of anonymous voices tend to do just kind of like one thing and that's what they're that's what they're focused on um i think it's kind of i i, I think getting everyone to kind of be part of just one organization would be would be kind of really difficult and i think that what we've got to do is try and encourage people as individuals because these the, all these organizations are made up of individuals you know individual people kind of join these groups and take part in these actions and the thing we've got to do is, is, is try to educate and persuade sort of individual activists to, to themselves broaden their range of um, actions. And, and once again, I, I think it's kind of important to talk about um, uh, you know, sort of local groups, because I think what tends to happen is, is most uh, vegan outreach uh, tends to happen really in the centre of um, the centre of, of of big cities and people go to central big cities from like the surrounding area and they could you know maybe travel really quite a long distance you know to take part in an action in, in a central big city where they'd be kind of standing there as part of that action and um what i'd kind of say to those people is look you know um the, the, the people that kind of are, are buying into um yeah, animal oppression people that consume animal products and etc you know, aren't just in the centre of big cities and aren't just going to be in the centre of big cities. They're everywhere, you know, and we need to have groups in it, you know, like I said, in every town, in the suburbs of cities um, <clears throat> and, and in smaller cities where, you, you know, quite a few smaller cities don't don't really see any action. And so I'd say, you know, kind of like, like I've got this sort of mantra that I say to people. And, and what I say to people is if, if, you're not, um, if you're not vegan, go vegan. If you're a vegan but you're not an activist, become an activist. Uh, and if if you're an activist but not an organizer, become an organizer. So instead of like travelling quite a long distance to kind of take part in a um, in, in an action in 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 a city, think about where you live or maybe where you work, and think about what can I organise in this area. It may be a small town, you know, thirty thousand people or something. What can I organise in this area? Can I? You know, you know, what type of activities can I get together with a few other people? You don't necessarily need like a huge group of people to do things, you know, and, and, and so that we can cover, the, you know, the whole country. We, you know, we can cover the whole country with activism and outreach rather than just it being focused in, 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 in certain large cities. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. 
Huawei's helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Huawei's helpline on 1300-111-500. That's 1300-111-500. Huawei supports 3CR. You've been listening to Freedom of Species, and that was an interview with Ronnie Lee, a long-time animal activist with over 50 years of experience in the UK. Stay tuned for other great shows on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.